Good morning. It's nice to see you all here uh, today on this uh, chilly morning. A week ago, I was in a 12th century castle on the Czech border near Germany uh, with 40 men cooking over an open fire, and it was colder back here than it was there. And so if you're wanting to make a little correlation, um, Czech is about Minnesota, and you guys were colder. Um, I've come back to some cold weather, but I like that. I actually grew up in Alaska, and so... um, this is, this is my kind of weather. I love it. Um, yeah, the coldest I ever walked to school in, and just to let you know, I'm telling the truth, it was level. It wasn't uphill both ways. Level trip. I walked to school one time in fifth grade, 25 below. Um, and uh, Alaska Bible College used to be in Glen Allen. It's in Anchorage now. I was at Alaska Bible College uh, for a conference, and um, it was 44 below air temperature, not not wind chill. And uh, a friend of mine showed me what would happen. We got a cup of water, stepped outside, threw it up in the air, and it froze solid before it hit the ground. Um, that's cold. This is not cold. That's cold. Um, We're glad that you are here and want you to, to come back tonight. Uh, it's going to warm up just a little bit. Uh, tonight at 6.30, we're going to be in this room for a night of worship. Um, at the end of the service, uh, we're going to need everybody to help us stack the chairs in stacks of seven. We'll get them in the hallway, uh, but stack the chairs in stacks of seven because we're going to turn this room into a circle of worship. Uh, the worship team is going to set up on the floor, and we'll gather here to be able to worship together. And so uh, we'd love for you to come back at 6.30 tonight. It's going to be a really, really great time. Uh, we are in this uh, series going through uh, the Bible, taking one book at a time. We've made it to the New Testament. And uh, just want to let you know, if you'd like to invite someone to be a part of this, there's some of these flyers out there at the Connection Center uh, that talk about what the series is and what we're trying to accomplish and why we're doing this rather than um, what is typically the case. You know, you take a passage passage of Scripture, you explain it, you make some applications. We're trying to do something a little bit different in this series. And I want to remind you again, what we're trying to do is I'm trying to help us read the Bible well, um, giving you the, the ability to, to read Scripture on your own, because all of the studies have proven over and over again the greatest predictor of spiritual growth and maturity is your own personal time in the Bible. It's your personal time in your Bible, not your personal time listening to me talk about the Bible. Spiritual growth and maturity comes more from what you do, and so uh, this, this series is trying to help you do that. And so I, I re- read and study your Bible. That's why we're doing this whole series. Um, it also is going to help us listen to messages well. There's a lot that's going on out there, so be discerning. Be discerning as you listen to my messages. Be discerning as you listen to all that you listen to. It's also here, per- designed to, to guide us in seeing the big picture of what God's doing in his story and help us interpret every individual book and see how we fit into that story. And in, in that regard, seeing the big picture and how we fit in, I want to encourage you, be a part of that. He, he, God has involved us in this story. We're going to see that clearly in Matthew today. Um, let's get busy doing what God has asked us to do as a part of this big unfolding story that he's providing. And, and I also think this big picture also provides us the hope Um, that God is up to something. He's doing something. So endure whatever you're going through. Persist. Continue to do what God has called you to do. Um, Out at the Connection Center, I've got a lot of resources. Uh, Three of them 
have to do just with interpreting the Gospels as a whole. We're going to take individual Gospels here, beginning with Matthew today. Uh, but Joel Williams, who I went to seminary with, Joel, Joel has a, a, a great piece. It's front and back, very small print, though, um, on um, how to interpret all of the Gospels. Just how do you approach that genre? Because it's not a biography. They're, they're very different. And in fact, the, the second article by Michael Heiser is really about how each Gospel has its own Holy Spirit-inspired agenda. Um, there's an agenda for the Gospels. It's not just to tell us about the life of Christ. I'll say more about that. And then the last uh, article by Michael Heiser is also, uh, also by him, is one that really talks about how, how the New Testament authors connect Jesus in the Old Testament. Um, then there's three resources that are just on Matthew, which is what I'm going to talk about today. Daryl Bach is going to talk about um, the argument of Matthew and how, how it flows and what, what Matthew is up to. Uh, there's an article there uh, by Mark Strauss, who has an excellent book, by the way, on the Gospels. It's called Four Portraits, One Jesus. And it's, it's, there's one Jesus, but there's these four portraits, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that portray him in slightly different ways, inspired by the Holy Spirit. His article is on the Twelve Apostles. Uh, and then um, there's an article there that is by Dan Wallace. I'll say more about Dan Wallace over the next co couple of weeks. Um, and Dan Wallace talking about the occasion and the purpose for Matthew being written. What, what prompted it to be written? What was its occasion? And, and what is the purpose for it being written? So those resources are out there. Um, setting this up, I want to I tie the New Testament in to the Old Testament one more time. What, what was going on in the Old Testament is really demonstrating our great need for Jesus. That's what the Old Testament does. It shows us how badly we need Jesus. Um, we started off in paradise, and in paradise, we didn't choose to follow God. Um, even in the perfect environment, we, we went our own way. Um, they were removed from the garden, but then God started to make promises. He made some general promises to Noah. I won't destroy the whole world again. That wasn't enough because pretty soon they're scattered around um, because they weren't doing what God wanted them to do. Instead of filling the earth with the knowledge of God, they were building the tower to themselves. So God decided to focus and elect one family to be the family through whom all the blessings would, would come. And that didn't perfectly play itself out. God, it's still God's plan. Um, so God gave that family a bunch of laws, but they never followed the laws. So then he sent a bunch of leaders. First of all, some charismatic leaders, a, a, a general, Joshua, um, some, some um, guys who were more like John Wayne, uh, who, who were these charismatic leaders who, who were, um, they were recognized by the people as leaders and people put them in charge. And in the book of Judges, things just got worse and worse and worse until there's corruption and, and craziness by the end of that book. And, and then there's a love story, but that wasn't the solution to it all in the book of Ruth. Then there were a bunch of kings, and those kings couldn't manage themselves, much less manage the nation. Those kind of leaders were not the, the solution to it. And then there are all kinds of lessons in the Old Testament, the lessons that come from the wisdom literature and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and, and then the prophets, 17 prophets who were giving all of these messages. None of that was the solution. <laughs> when we had it good in paradise, we, didn't, we went our own way. When God started promising he was going to take care of things, we still went our own way. He gave us a big, long list of rules. We couldn't follow the rules. He sent some leaders to help us, and the leaders were corrupted and led us the wrong way. He, he gave us clear preaching through all of these uh, prophets, uh, and, and we still didn't get it because we needed Jesus. 
And that's what the, the whole Old Testament is leading up to. And there's some pictures and predictions and prophecies that he's coming. But the whole Old Testament in general is just going, you desperately need Jesus. And that's where we are today. And we're going to look at the life of Jesus. And I have um, this chronology. I feel pretty uh, committed to it's. I think it's pretty accurate. Uh, the birth of Jesus would have been in December or January of 5 or 4 B.C., Feels pretty, I feel pretty confident because of some other re- reasons for that. That means Jesus was in the temple in 8 AD. His ministry began in 30 AD. We have some references to uh, who, who the rulers were when all of that started to happen, uh, which means the, the Passion Week, the last week of his life, would have been um, starting at the end of March in 30, 33 AD. That's when, when the crucifixion took place. Um, feel pretty confident about that. Here's one of the reasons I want to put this up there. We know these dates, um, but you need to be aware of this. Um, There are only 57 days of Christ's life that are covered in the New Testament, okay? All of those years, Christ was probably close to 36 when he was crucified. All of those years of his life, but when you put it all together, you only have 56 days that you can pull apart and go, okay, this was a day, this was another day that this happened, another day. This. There are only 50, 57, sorry, 57 of those days that are covered. So the question is, with, with a whole life like that, we're only covering 57 days. Um, what are the gospel writers doing? Why do they choose particular days and not other days? Why do they live a lot of days completely unmentioned? I mean, even if you only take the three and a half years of his ministry, out of that, there, there are only like 54 days that are, that are talked about. Um, and so the, the question is, what is each gospel writer doing? Well, in order to understand what each gospel writer is doing, you have to kind of see the big picture and then say, given the big picture, why did Matthew just choose these events and arrange them this way? Mark is going to choose different events and arrange them a different way. In order to kind of help us get that big picture over the next four weeks, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take us through and, and, and help us kind of get the big picture together. It's not the picture that we're revealed, because to get those 57 days to get the big picture, you have to put all four Gospels together. But out at the Connection Center, um, there is this card, and on the front side of the card is just a real quick summary that we're going to work through here in just a moment of the life of Christ. On the back are some critical dates, some important dates, Okay. But what I want us to do is, based on the front of this card, um, I want us to review the life of Christ, okay? And I want us to, to get the whole thing together because it's, it's based on understanding this is how it flows that we understand why the Gospels do what they do. For instance, uh, two of the Gospels have genealogies, two of them don't. Why? Well, that has to do with their purpose, and they're selecting out of this material. And so what we're going to do is we're going to um, work through the life of Christ with some hand motions, okay? So I want you to stand up. Everybody needs to stand up. We've, we've done these before, but I, it's good for us to remember. And what we're going to see is, is three different sections of, of the life of Christ. The preparation for his ministry. Then we're going to see the actual ministry, about three and a half years. And then his Passion Week, which is just one week. In fact, Mark, uh, when we'll see this next week, Mark spends um, half of his book, eight chapters, on the ministry of Christ, and then half of the book is on the last week. So eight chapters on three and a half years, and then eight chapters on seven days. Um, 
why are they choosing all of that? Well, to understand that, we have to understand the big flow. So we're going to talk about the preparation for Christ's ministry. Each one of these three sections, preparation, ministry, and passion, have four steps to them, hand motions, okay? So the first thing I need you to do is hold a baby in your arms, okay? And we're going to hold a baby and rock it just a little bit. And, and we're just going to say the one word to remind us of that. Um, some of you are putting that baby right to sleep. Some of you are burping that baby. Um, just, just hold the baby gently, okay? Um, and, and on three, we're just going to say birth, okay? One, two, three birth. Then I need to bring a hand up. We're going to see this today a little bit later, a baptism. Okay. So I want you to birth, baptism, and then I need you to be as sinister as you can and kind of give me this. Okay. It's so fascinating. It happened again today. People are looking at each other with this temptation thing. I don't know what that is. There's, there's some lesson there. Okay. So we've got three things. Okay. On three, one, two, three, birth, baptism, temptation. Then I need you to teach. Okay. Get your hands up. You're teaching. Okay. All right, let's do those three, those, those four all together. Do, loud, do, all together. Let, let me hear it, okay? One, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching. Okay, then we get his ministry. And your hands are going to be up like this. And in the three years of his ministry, there's really a year of obscurity, a year of popularity, and a year of opposition. Uh, the first year, he's very obscure. No one really even recognizes what he's doing. So we're going to go obscurity, okay? Then I need you to put your hands up like this. Popularity. Okay, and then opposition, because once he becomes popular, the Jews are going to oppose him and they're going to want to destroy him. Okay, so let's put those three together. Okay, we've got obscurity, popularity, opposition. And then from here, during those three years of, of ministry, he's training his disciples. So give me training. Okay, put that together. Okay, All on the, the middle section on three. Ready? One, your hands are up like this. You've been teaching. Okay, one, two, three. Obscurity, popularity opposition, training. Okay. The last week of his life, his passion week, um, our, our hands um, are, are, are up like this training. And what we're going to do is we're going to go into a courtroom with a gavel and we're going to go trial, then crucifixion, and then go down here in the grave, resurrection, right on up to ascension. Okay. Let's put that together. Okay. Ready? One, two, three. Trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. All right, let's do it all together. I'm not going to move across the stage. I would fall down. Okay. So let's put all 12 steps together. Ready? On three. One, two, three. Birth, baptism, temptation, teaching, obscurity, popularity, opposition, training, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension. That's the life of Christ. Very good. You can have a seat. Yay. So the question in this why did Matthew not just put that in there? That's not what Matthew does. Matthew does something very different. What is Matthew doing? Why is he doing it? And what are we supposed to learn from that? That's what I'm going to try to get to today. Um, Scott Duvall says it this way. Matthew's main concern is to show that Jesus is the true king and Messiah. From the very beginning, Jesus is revealed as the Christ, Messiah. By the way, Christ is... Um, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed, and Christ is the Greek word for anointed. Christ is the anointed one, anointed to be the fulfillment of the promises. He's the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew wants to show that this new movement within Judaism, eventually identified as Christianity, is authentic Judaism because these people are following the true Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but he also fulfills God's plan to bring salvation to the nations, and the gospel ends with a commission to make disciples of all nations. 
So Matthew is, is placed in uh, the Bible close to the Old Testament, the first New Testament book, because it's, it's really showing this connection. What, G, what was promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. The Jews didn't accept it. So we have this new group of Christians who are going to fulfill that, but they're really connected. They're, the full, they're following the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Scott goes on to say, Matthew's first readers probably needed encouragement to endure persecution, to stay strong in their faith, and to take this good news of Jesus to the nations. No wonder the gospel of Matthew was extremely popular in the early church. Far and away in the first 300 years of the church, Matthew is quoted, preached, Matthew is clearly the most popular gospel, and it's likely because during that time, they're really trying to show, hey, we're the real extension of the Old Testament, and the Jews are persecuting us, um, but we're going to keep doing what we're doing because we're the real heirs to what the Old Testament is, not the Jews who have rejected Jesus. And so Matthew is showing them, keep enduring, do follow the teachings of Jesus, fulfill his commission even in the midst of the opposition that you're getting. Um, a, a good scholar, Mark Strauss, again, his book is really helpful, talks about the characteristics of Matthew's gospel. It has strong Jewish orientation. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Equally strong denunciation of the Jewish religious leaders. The Jews who rejected him, he's, he's against them, but he's for Jews. Um, emphasis on the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. There's an interest in the law, Old Testament law and its relationship to the followers of Jesus. How do we relate to the Old Testament law? There are five long discourses of teaching material. I'm going to talk about that a lot in, in this message. Uh, there's an alternation, alternating between discourse and narrative. The whole book goes, here's a narrative, then a, then a long sermon. Narrative, long sermon, narrative, long sermon, five times. Topical arrangement relating material that's grouped together. It's not chronologically arranged. There's an emphasis on Jesus' Messiahship, and in that, the titles that, my, that Matthew likes are Son of God, Christ, and Son of David. Mark's going to like Son of Man, um, and we'll see why that is next week. There's an emphasis on Jesus as the presence of God, Matthew 121. He starts off, God is with us. That becomes important for Matthew. Jesus is portrayed as a new Israel and a new Moses. He Jesus does everything Israel couldn't do. Israel failed at everything. Jesus succeeds at everything. And Jesus is a new Moses um, who is presenting this new Torah. Uh, you'll understand that by the time I finish here. Jesus per was portrayed as wisdom incarnate. He's, he's everything we need. Um, there's a great role for Peter uh, more than any of the other Gospels, which is surprising. Um, and, and there's an emphasis on this mission to the Gentiles. So those are the things, as you're reading through, these are the things you should be looking for. So let's start working through what's going on here. Um, who composed Matthew? The author of the first gospel is Matthew, also known as Levi, and some of the people call him Levi. He had two names. He's a tax collector who became a disciple of Jesus. This identification of him as a tax collector explains many of the distinctive themes in Matthew. It's the only gospel that refers to him as a tax collector, so it's a diminutive name. Being a tax collector wasn't a good thing, and so he actually identifies himself as a tax collector. Yeah, I was that bad kind of a guy. God redeemed me. And we find an emphasis on money in the gospel. Matthew talks more about money, relays Jesus' teaching on money many, more than any other gospel. And the book is also skillfully organized and structured, as one might expect from someone who dealt with numbers. He's a scientific kind of guy. He was a numbers guy, and so the gospel's arranged that way. I'm going to step out of the message here for just a minute and say, I really like The Chosen. I think you should be watching The Chosen. It's fantastic. You should watch it. When I began to watch it, I arrogantly, pompously, the dark part of my heart was like, I'm going to watch this and find all the problems in it because I know the Bible and this is not going to be good. They're on. It is right. 
Um, I haven't found anything that I would disagree with yet. Um, I, I, I look at it and I, I'm reading it. There, Dawn and I are watching it for the fourth time now. It is really good. I think you should watch The Chosen. It's really, really good. They may go off the rails in the future. I don't know. The three seasons that they have done are fantastic. They portray Matthew as on the spectrum. Okay? Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe, could be. I do know Matthew seems pretty scientific. I know my friends who are um, scientific, yeah, sometimes I think they're on the spectrum. Um, and so I don't know, you know, numbers people, that's not me. I'm a words guy. I'm not a numbers guy. Um, this was a numbers guy. This numbers guy is arranging this material very structured. You're going to see that in just a moment. Who's Matthew's original audience? Who are these original people writing? The fact that Matthew includes many unexplained Jewish customs and historical allusions seems to indicate that his original audience would have been Jewish Christians in the first century because he doesn't explain things that those people would have, would have known. They seem to be Jewish because he assumes they know a bunch of Jewish customs. Um, and there's a growing consensus, however, among scholars that the gospel writers knew they were preserving the life and teaching of Jesus for future generations of the church, both Jews and Gentiles. So even though he had an original audience, and, and God knew this was going to be for us too, it does seem like each gospel writer seems to be aware, I'm writing for a particular immediate audience, but they seem to be aware as well that they know this is, they're capturing something that's, that's bigger because they don't know how long it's going to last. In fact, the thing that probably prompted the writing of the gospels is that Jesus hadn't come back yet. And so once Jesus hasn't come back yet 20 years down the road, they're kind of going, well, if he's not coming back, maybe we better write this stuff down. Um, and if we're writing it down, we don't know how long it is until he comes back. I'm writing it for the people right in front of me, but everybody else needs to know it. That's what's going on here. When was it written? It's likely that Matthew was written in the late 50s or perhaps even the early 60s before the Jewish uprising started, which resulted in Roman, the Roman siege of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Here's what's going on there. In about 66 AD, the Jews really started to rise up against the Romans. Um, and at that point, the Romans really clamped down on them and travel became really difficult. And that eventually led, the uprising didn't stop, it eventually led to the Romans um, besieging Jerusalem and eventually destroying the temple in 70 AD. None of that seems to have happened yet because Matthew's talking about the temple. There seems to be fairly easy access and travel. So it, it seems like Matthew's writing before all of that has happened. So that's why we date it that way. For Matthew... Jesus' relationship to Israel and explaining Israel's rejection are major concerns, Daryl Bach says. Matthew wishes to point out that those who are Christians didn't seek a break with Judaism, but have been forced to be distinct because the nation rejected the completion of the divine and scriptural promise that Jesus brought and offered. Um, when Matthew's writing before the destruction of, of the temple, the temple is still probably functioning, and Matthew's explaining the Christians aren't breaking away from that. We're actually in continuity with that. They're the ones who didn't follow the plan because they rejected what Jesus was offering. Daryl goes on to say, however, that rejection didn't stop the arrival of the promise. What rejection did was to raise the stakes of discipleship and lead to a creation of the new entity, the church. The church's message not only continued to appeal to Israel, but also went out as a part of the mission to all the world. Um, God's doing this thing in continuity, and the, the Jews rejected their place in it, and so now we have this 
you'll see in a moment, the church is, is really, the birth of the church is central in, in the book of Matthew. And the church is going to continue the work and take that message around the world. Where were they when, they when they were reading all this and he was writing? The references to local places without explanation, frequent use of Aramaic phrases, is a strong indication that Matthew was in Palestine, was writing to Christians in the same place. The language of the whole world is Greek. Okay, so everybody's, everybody speaks Greek all over the world. The Jews spoke Hebrew, but in Palestine, um, they spoke Aramaic. Um, and there's some historical references that maybe Matthew collected some things in Aramaic. Um, but he definitely uses Aramaic phrases and doesn't explain them. So it seems like he's writing to people who would have known about all of this Aramaic stuff that's going on. Why was Matthew writing? <laughs> Matthew proves that Jesus was the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. Matthew demonstrates why Jesus, as the promised king, didn't fail to establish a kingdom, even though it was rejected by the nation. The kingdom was inaugurated, though it's not consummated until Christ returns. He also shows that the gospel was now open to Gentiles. Throughout all of this, Jesus is presented as this new Moses who provides a new Torah to guide the people of God on mission. Um, in the Old Testament, the, the Jews followed the Torah, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We call it the Pentateuch. It's their Torah. It's their guide for Judaism. Moses wrote it. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment and the superseding of all of that. And Jesus is this new Moses. And Jesus is going to preach five main sermons that now become the guide. As the Torah was the guide in the Old Testament, these five sermons of Jesus are going to become the guide in the book of Matthew. That's how this thing is developed. It, it, it looks like this. There's, there's a narrative and then a sermon, a narrative and a sermon, a narrative, a sermon. Five times you get these five messages, and it's very clear that he's setting them, all, that he's setting them out because at the end of every one of the messages, there's a very similar closing statement and transition to the next narrative. So there's a literary key that he's, he's marking off. Here are these five messages because Jesus, he's the new Moses. This is the new guide. This is how we're supposed to live. Mark Strauss presents it um, in a chiastic structure. I think this actually works. You get the, the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus at the beginning and the end. The thing that's at the middle there, the third discourse, are the parables of the kingdom. And here's what the parables of the kingdom are. In chapter 13, following the Jewish rejection of Christ in chapter 12, chapter 12, the Jews reject. In chapter 13, Matthew presents Jesus teaching in parables of the new form of the kingdom that's basically the church. He's going to say the, this is a new thing that God is doing, um, and, and he commissions. And so right at the, in the middle of the book is this teaching on how the church is going to be how we move forward in all of this. Mark Strauss concluding says this, from our narrative analysis, we conclude that the primary purpose of Matthew's gospel is to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish hopes for the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah represents the climax of salvation history, the fulfillment of God's plan to bring salvation to his people and to the Gentile nations. That's what I think is going on here. My chart that's out there at the Connection Center um, highlights that is, as best as I can. Uh, down in the bottom left corner of the chart, um, there is um, the section that has this new Torah. It shows you um, all of the lessons 
and how there's a transition, a closing and a transition at the, each one of those that marks it off in these five great teaching sections. Um, in the chart, you can see them. Those are the five sections um, that move through there. And then it ends with what we call the Great Commission. Because Jesus has given us this new Torah, here's how we live, and what he talks about life in the kingdom, he talks about life in community, life on mission, uh, he talks about signs of the, the age to come, and at the end he says, living this way, I'm commissioning you to take this gospel message to the entire world. So it ends with this commission for this new entity, the church that is moving forward. Here's how I state it on the chart. Matthew presented selected events from Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and teaching, stressing this kingdom program of God, with an emphasis on Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament in order to assure Jewish believers and non-believers that God's kingdom program had not been done away with, but had entered a new phase, the church age, which is inaugurated by Jesus so that his disciples, both Jew and Gentile, would live according to the teachings of Jesus as recorded by Matthew in five key sermons, which form a new Torah for the subjects of the king. I think that's what's going on in Matthew. So let's watch that unfold as best I can. Um, here's um, Jesus is presented at the very first book, um, in the very first verse. Jesus is presented this way. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We don't really need much more than that, okay? This is, this is the whole book in one verse, okay? <laughs> Matthew's very... Um, intentional in presenting it this way. He is presenting Jesus the Messiah. He's the Messiah, anointed one. He's the anointed one that fulfills all of the Old Testament promises and expectations. He's the Messiah. He's the son of David. He's a king. He's the son of Abraham. He's Jewish. There's Matthew. Jesus is the Jewish king who fulfills all the promises of the Old Testament. That's who Jesus is. Jesus is the king of the Jews. And Jesus is going to say that he's the fulfillment of everything that Israel couldn't do. Do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus didn't come to say, Old Testament, let's do away with it. No, what he's saying is, Old Testament... You couldn't keep it, but I could. You couldn't fulfill it, but I could. So I kept all the laws. I learned all the lessons. And I'm the one who's coming to help you have this relationship with God. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it. He fulfilled it perfectly. What he says is um, every jot and tittle. That's how I learned it in the King James Version. Um, the smallest stroke or the, the smallest little hitch, okay? Um, what he's alluding to is the Hebrew alphabet, okay? What you have up there is three Hebrew letters, um, a Y, a D, and an R. That's what it is, a, a Yod, a Dalit, and a Resh. Um, the Yod, that first letter, it is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. That's what he says, the smallest letter. He's talking about a Yod, um, which the King James translated a jot, not one jot. It's about as big as, a, as, a, a per, as an exclamation point. No, no, it's about as big as a apostrophe. Jeez. Um, there are no apostrophes in Hebrew, and I'm a scholar, but I don't know English. Um, there's, <laughs> it's as big as an apostrophe, okay? That's, all how, that's how big it is. Um, it's a jot. 
The next thing he talks about is the smallest distinguishing factor. It's the overhang on the dalit that is not on the reish, and he calls it a tilde. We have a tilde in our, in, in our uh, uh, grammatical signs as well. It's just a wavy line. But he's basically saying not the smallest letter, a, a, a yod, or even the smallest distinguishing feature, that little hook that hangs over the end. God, Jesus fulfills every single bit of it. So Jesus fulfills what we never could. And then what he does is he says, and I meet that standard of righteousness. For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. The, the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most righteous people. The scribes, they were the scholars of the law. The Pharisees, they were the enforcers of the law. Um, but he's saying your righteousness has to be greater than theirs. The, the righteousness that only he could attain. By the way, this is contained, Matthew 5.20, is in the Sermon on the Mount. Real quick story about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, in the uh, 1930s, um, a, a, a new kind of approach to studying the Bible was, was being uh, birthed. It's called rhetorical criticism. And what it, what it does is it, is it basically approaches uh, the letters and the speeches of the New Testament from the perspective of them being speeches. Rhetoric is just ancient speech, okay? That's rhetoric 101 would be your current speech 101 class, okay? So, so what happened is um, this one scholar, Hans Dieter Betz, he was writing a commentary on Galatians. And as he's writing this commentary on Galatians, he's like, how can I make this new? And so he, he's, you know, looking around, talks to some of his colleagues who study ancient um, writings and they study ancient rhetoric, which means Homer and Cicero and all those guys. And he goes, well, how do you study that? And so he learned some of the principles for it. Um, and he, he applies the principles of ancient speeches to this commentary on Galatians. Okay? Everybody basically goes, hey, he did a horrible job at it. But this is really interesting. The Bible is a new, we've been studying Homer and Cicero, we're tired of it, there's new stuff for us to study. Hey, let's apply this to the Bible. So all these secular scholars, probably atheists, they start studying the Bible from the perspective of ancient speeches. A bunch of them get together, and by the 1950s, they're going, okay, what are, what are the Bible? Who's in the Bible? Jesus, oh, that Jesus guy's in the Bible. Did he give any speeches? Yes, he gave a speech. What's his famous speech? Well, the Sermon on the Mount is a famous speech, Matthew 5 through 7. So these scholars, with no agenda, they start to study the Sermon on the Mount, and as they study the Sermon on the Mount, they conclude, this is brilliant, Liberal scholars had concluded, oh, this is just an amalgamation of a bunch of crazy things that are all you know, put together. The rhetorical scholars who understand ancient speech, they go, no, this is beautiful. This guy knew what he was doing. This is one of the most beautiful speeches of all time. And here's the message this Jesus guy seems to be communicating very clearly. To have a relationship with God, you need a righteousness that you can't get yourself. You have to get it from somebody else. Huh. I think they were onto something. That's what Jesus is saying. I fulfilled it. And it's through my righteousness that you can get that righteousness yourself. And then he sends them out into the harvest. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9. Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and hearing every kind, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And in chapter 10, he sends them into the harvest two by two. 
He sends them into the harvest. We're going to see people at the end of our service today who are going into the harvest. This sending into the harvest, it continues today because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Jesus says, I've got this righteousness. You need to tell people that their righteousness comes through me. And he sends them out into that. And as he's explaining this, after the, the, um, after the Jewish leadership has rejected him, he starts to teach in parables, Matthew 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. Uh, this is a particular way to teach. It's using analogies and it's a story form. And the question becomes, why are you teaching this way, Jesus? The disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have in abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while seeing they don't see, and while hearing they don't hear, nor do they understand." He teaches in parables because he says they're, they're not willing to make the connections they need to make, that God is up to something bigger than just their small little world. The Jewish leaders had rejected, and all they could see was the law, the law, the law, the law. We have to observe the law. We have to observe the law. And Jesus teaches in parables because he says they're never going to see it, but you're going to see that it's something bigger than just the law. The book concludes with the Great Commission. Um, at the very end of the book, here's the last verses. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. My translation, as you are going, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Again, that presence at the beginning, Matthew 121, God is with us at the end of the book. He is with us to the end of the age. God is present, but present. He sends us into the harvest, and what he asks us to do is make disciples. Um, that's the one imperative of the Great Commission, okay? There are three other participles that are basically attendant circumstances. When you're making disciples, this has to be going on, but the one thing that's literally a command, it's an imperative, is make disciples. Now, the other participles, I'm going to highlight them in a minute, they have a little bit of an imperatival force to them. You, you've got to be doing that, but the main thing is make disciples, make people who are following, who are imitating, who are, who are obeying Jesus. Now, in order to do that, you have to be going, and I think that's as you're going, wherever you're going, wherever it is that you're going, as you're going, make disciples, and that involves, as you're going, wherever you're going, get going if you're not going, um, baptizing people, initiating them into the family of God. And after they're initiated, we're going to see an initiation today, someone who has trusted Christ, who's going to be baptized to say, hey, I'm in. And then teaching them to observe all that God commands. That's the commission. Make followers of Jesus Christ wherever you're going, initiating them, sharing the gospel with them so they're in, and then teach them to observe so they can become reproducing disciples as well. Dan Wallace, who I'll talk about in a couple of weeks, um, Dan Wallace says this, in sum, Matthew first proves that Jesus was the Messiah. Second, he shows that Jesus did not fail to establish the kingdom. The failure was the nations. And the kingdom was inaugurated, though not consummated, in the coming of the Messiah. Finally, he wishes to show that because the nation failed to respond, 
the gospel is now open, open to the Gentiles, and that's what we're commissioned to do, is take it to everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, all around the world. So where does all this fit? Well, Matthew is perhaps the first gospel written, and by far the most popular gospel in the first centuries of the church. Matthew's a very Jewish gospel, clearly presents Jesus as the fulfillment of messianic prophecy. It assumes a knowledge of Jewish background, history, and customs. Matthew presents Jesus as king of the Jews and savior of the world. The structure of the book sets forth Jesus as this new Moses who delivers a new Torah in five key messages. Those five key messages is the structure of the book. So what should we believe? We should believe that Jesus is the fulfillment and culmination of the Old Testament. It's all been building to this. Jesus is both the savior of the world who came to redeem and the king of the Jews who will return to reign. He came to redeem. He's coming back to reign. Until he comes back to reign, we should tell people he came to redeem. Jesus left us with a purpose to represent him in the world and make disciples of all nations. This is the reason we're still here. So what should we, how should we behave? It's pretty simple. <laughs> Embrace the gracious salvation that comes through the king of the Jews' death and resurrection. This is the point. You can't achieve righteousness on your own. Paradise promises, law, leaders' lessons. None of it works. The only thing that works is Jesus. And he accomplished it all and paid the penalty for our shortcomings. When you embrace what he provides through his death and resurrection, now you're part of this new community. And we've been commissioned as that new community to make disciples of Jesus Christ. So I've got two next steps. They parallel those things. Accept the salvation that comes through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, that's the point. The point isn't trying harder, learning more lessons, getting more rules, finding the right leadership in the church. That's not the point. The point is you can't do it. You need a righteousness that's not your own. You get it through Jesus. And if you're already, if you're already part of the community, then take an active step to begin living a Great Commission lifestyle. And what I mean by that is see your purpose as fulfilling the Great Commission. That's why you're here. You're not here to retire, to go on vacation, to make more money, to catch more fish. Um, that's not why you're here. You are here to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Through your life, your testimony, and your ability to clearly present this good news that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. Father, thank you for the clarity, the simplicity of this message. Thank you for preparing Matthew, Matthew the man, to write Matthew the book so that we could see that Jesus is the culmination of everything that we've been studying about in the Old Testament. And Father, I pray that you would allow us to respond in obedience to what he's called us to do. And that is accept his provision through faith and live out his commission in obedience. Lord, we want to do that for your glory, for his fame. And Lord, we are graciously incorporated into this great plan that you have. Help us to live it out faithfully, empowered by the Spirit. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen.